we're often running on our discourses on the Satipatthana Sutta, but I, I thought I would, I'd like to reframe it from different angles sometimes. I think it helps clarify what we're doing and why we're doing it if we just have a different vantage point from time to time. Tonight I'd just like to start off by uh, considering this particular perception, <clears throat> and that is when anything arises uh, into form so that it's observable, uh, be it a state of mind, a thought, the sense of me, or whatever, uh, what we usually do if, uh, when, if we have a presentation in ourselves of a state of mind, a form arising, we meet it with form. We meet it with uh, our muscle, with our objection. We actually do violence to it, don't we? We, uh, we sparks fly. Form, meeting form, sparks fly, right? So what I mean by that is if you meet any state of mind, it's bound to be, uh, there's bound to be friction, right? Two forms meeting each other. It's like two rocks grating against one another. Two forms, you get sparks. Now, if form arises and you meet it with the formless, no sparks arise. In fact, what happens in that meeting, because formlessness or awareness, awareness doesn't have any presentation. It doesn't have a manifestation as such. So that's why we call it empty. It's empty of form. But it doesn't mean it's empty of everything. There's an intelligence within formlessness. And so when formless, the form, the state of mind we're in, or the events or experiences we're having is met with formlessness, it's held. There's no collision, there's no friction. And in that being held with the intelligence of formlessness, with the intelligence of awareness, it's not your intelligence, that's intelligence beyond our knowing, it's understood. But form, meeting form, doesn't understand it. It just does violence to it. It wants to do something with it. It wants to get over it. It wants to get rid of it. it. wants to, in its most passive form, wait for it to end. But when form meets emptiness, like when paper, rock, and scissors, right? <laughs> when rock meets paper, paper wraps rock, but there's no friction. When form meets space, meets awareness, and what we're doing is learning how to meet form formlessly, without violence. And it takes an enormous amount of understanding to even want to do that because within formlessness we lose our power. We lose our authority, right? Because as soon as your authority shows up, you're back in form and there's sparks flying. Are you following this? Okay. So the path of meditation is the path of meeting form, the expression of our conditioning, whatever is arising that takes shape, even a thought, and we meet it with formlessness, with understanding. Now that's ultimate nonviolence, isn't it? 
So we have to be willing to give up our authority to ascend to nonviolence. We can't become a nonviolent form. It's impossible. Two rocks are never going to have a lovely time to each other as they crunch each other to death. So, so it's just a different perception. And that is the reason that the journey seems to take so long. Because we're wi not willing to give up our authority within the form we take, within the sense of me and you and I and mine. That's the form, the authority of the form we take. And so the, the path is discovering why, inevitably, we have to meet form with formlessness. And we keep seeing it, but we keep taking shape and then arguing about it and keep trying to do it within shape. We keep trying to be passive to it and polite to it and meta to it and all kinds of different expressions, but we're just, you know, we're still throwing things at it. Anything, you know, a flower or another rock is still a violent act, isn't it? But that which holds it, that's which does nothing to it, that wants nothing from it can truly understand what that form is. And it's the only way to understand, is not to want a quid pro quo. All right, I will not hit you if you leave in five minutes, right? If you're out of here. After that, I don't know, my patience is, right? So that, all right, so I just wanted to bring that. Now worry is an expression See, all the states of mind we've studied up until this is our, our manifestations of our authority. Right? We've looked at judgment and anger and fear and desire. Those are all ways that we form into our authority by demanding something on life, on the forms of life. And so tonight we're going to that's how we divide out. That's how we keep ourselves in place, is through these presentations of mind states. So tonight we're going to look at how we do violence. And I don't, you have to understand what I mean by violence. Friction, resentment, through worry. Division through worry. Now, it's an, worry is an interesting one. Because uh, there's a, a deep uh, truth that we hold about worry. In fact, we're going to go through a, a number of assumptions about worry tonight. And these assumptions desperately need your uh, understanding. They need you to bring your understanding to the assumptions that we hold within worry so that we can uproot worry itself. It's, we're not going to uproot it any other way except by looking at what these states of mind ask from us and what ignorance they impart to us and then looking very deeply to see whether that's how we want to live our life. Right? So we're going to get to some of the assumptions of worry, but one of the deepest ways that the pattern of worry conditions itself in us is that uh, we think that we'll become complacent and uncaring unless we worry. Doesn't worry motivate me towards involvement? Doesn't worry 
act as kind of a lash on me, right? A violence that gets me up and going. I mean, I need my worry. I get, as ridiculous as that sounds, people, many people, not just a few, have said that very same thing to me. So if you're, if you're just going to if you're just going to hold on to that particular truism in yourself, we're not going to come to the end of this thing. Now the point of it is to make this form, allow, allow this form to be held in formlessness. But if you keep having strategies and assumptions about this, there's no way that your authority is ever going to go, go uh, relinquish control to it. Not if you think you need it. Right? If you think you need it, you're going to stay very much in shape to it uh, and, very, uh, and, and very encouraging of that state of mind because you need it. And we think we need this thing. The restless, worried, troubled, fretting mind. We need it. This is how incredibly um, insane our lives are when they're unexamined. Now, as we are moving to formless holding form, we are moving from an, the old paradigm of form meeting form to the new paradigm of form being held by the formless. The old paradigm keeps persuading us to come back into form through the strategies and assumptions it imparts to us that are very deeply learned by us. And it holds this tenacious grasp upon us that we think, and we just really believe this stuff, these assumptions, we really think that we can't do away with, I mean, many of us have expressed in the question and answer period assumptions from the old paradigm as we're trying to march this thing into the new paradigm. Assumptions like, well, I need my anger to, to uh, encourage my a passion towards injustice. Without anger, I would feel complacent or passive or I wouldn't feel involved, right? That's the old paradigm speaking through you. Until and unless we question these assumptions very deeply in ourselves. Is that true? Not asking questions to some authority figure but looking deeply in ourselves and seeing whether I need my anger, or in this case, worry, because if I weren't that, I would, I, there would be nothing that motivated me forward. And on and on again, this old paradigm asserts its previous strategies as we are moving forward into a complete new shift of paradigms that have a complete different orientation to form itself. So I just want to encourage us, you know, we have to uproot what is holding us in place. The assumptions that we, we can't just ask questions from those assumptions, we have to look at the very assumptions that hold us in place in order for us to move forward. And many of us are not willing to do that because, and this is where worry comes in, it creates a kind of confusion in us to ask questions about how we have taken our life to be and what we have taken our life to be is too disturbing. So we'll keep our life in place and then ask questions from there, going 
from there outward, keeping the root system in place. You're still a dandelion, but you now want to mow the lawn. <clears throat> that was a very poor. <laughs> they come, some come and some don't. No one didn't come. So uh, restlessness is a body, bodily expression of worry. Uh, restlessness is a component of worry. Often we never see those two linked together, the ceaseless restlessness that is trying to plan its way out of worry. It's not the only manifestation of restlessness, but it certainly is a common one. Uh, but we don't link the two necessarily. We just feel this... Uh, tension, this feeling of a, being like a caged animal. And we, the, so the body is evoking that sense of being perturbed, you know, just, uh, just sort of, so there's a free-floating anxiety about it that worry creates uh, that when left unattended becomes a, a way we get out of bed in the morning it becomes an attitude to life itself. It becomes kind of like, oh, you know, just a kind of a anxiousness about life that has a worried tone in it. Now, as I mentioned last week, these states of mind are so general, they're not actually pure states of mind in themselves. They're actually composites of many states of mind. So in worry, you can feel fear and you can feel lots of different states, impatience and all of the different states, but I think it's useful to, to group them because we often see them grouped rather than in their uh, multiple arrays. We often see them grouped. And so the sense of worry, this flea-floating anxiety, is, is just this, and many people have this in the background noise of anxiety that they just walk through life and it drives them forever. And it creates a, a perpetual planning and uh, trying to work out the future. In fact, uh, as we get to the assumptions in this, I think you'll see very plainly how this state of worry maintains itself through the payoffs it gives us. Now we are looking directly at these states of mind. And, uh, if there's a thought in any of us when we are worried or depressed or anxious or impatient or any of the other multiple states of mind that we will flesh out, oh, this shouldn't be happening to me. Or I, I'm too um, advanced. <laughs> I'm too spiritually advanced for worry. And as soon as that as soon as that arises in us, you know, as soon as you're a, a decade or two down the line and you still have the same worry arising, uh, that uh, reaction of mine can come very quickly. Like, oh, you know, this, this really can't be, this must be a holdover from a previous incarnation, we'll say. <laughs> this can't be who I am now. Now, uh, the need to escape the thought of being worried is itself worry isn't it? So it's just helpful to see how we feed the bonfire 
of these states of mind by our subtle reactivity to these states of mind. So let us look. Oh, before that, I want to, there's a quote I like. I think it describes worry pretty well. It says, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you a lot of movement and something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the assumptions of worry. They're, they're very interesting, actually. And again, uh, when we hear those assumptions in us, they should, um, they should bring a kind of resolve in us to explore them to its ending. How do we explore them? We explore them through our understanding, our willingness to see what they're about, not with violence. If you do violence to form, you're reforming yourself. If you do nonviolence to form, you're understanding the, re the, the, the nature of what's in front of you. And it's only through understanding that emptiness will meet, ever meet itself. So let's look. Okay, the first assumption of worry is now is not safe. Right? Tomorrow holds the hope. Today is full of worry. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with today. It's tomorrow is where I put, I infuse my hope, my significance. Now let's just stop for a moment and bring your Dharma understanding to that internal expression because it's one thing to do it when you're not worried. It's another thing to look at worry and see that it's forcing a sense of planning beyond the present moment and that realizing, we all have the realization, that that doesn't serve us spiritually at all to leave this present moment and try to work out the next moment so this moment won't be so chaotic. But the future then holds an, an inordinary, inordinary importance. It has a tremendous significance to us. And it, it feels so important to place our attention ahead of ourselves to see if we can't plan our way through the anxiety we're feeling now. Notice you don't really settle with the anxiety you're feeling now. You're trying to plan your way out of that anxiety. And anyway, any time that our eyes are cast outside of now towards the resolution of what we fear might happen, we can be assured there's very little understanding taking place as to the real problem, which is the chaos and confusion that now holds. But it's so uncomfortable to feel that anxiety that we attempt very strongly and very quickly to plot a course free of it, which involves us mapping out a journey through this particular experience we might be having. Now, you know, said very simply, life is not, not being lived for itself, but to resolve my worry. That's the point of that moment in time. It's not being lived for itself. If we live life for itself, we have to take life 
however it's manifesting. We live it for itself. We don't ask any particular form to arise in order for us to be present. We take whatever forms are arising to be present within. So if you're leaning ahead, trying to resolve the particular state of mind you're in, you're not being settled. We are not being settled with whatever it is that life is bringing to us in this moment. And it's important to get a sense of how it is that we run on time. Right? That's how form works itself. We run on time. Now, the more it does that, the more empowered we feel. Because just being present to the worrisome present <coughs> feels disempowering. What can I do about this worry? What can I do about the future? It takes the power, the authority, away from me. As I mentioned, that's why it's so difficult. So, but the more we're present with it just being here, the more we meet the form of worry with the formlessness of observation, of awareness. The more we the more we form in relationship to what we need to do about the worry, the more we're meeting the form of worry with the form of ourselves and the collision occurs. Okay, so that's the first assumption. The second assumption, left on its own, the world is chaotic and whimsical. We don't trust it. It needs our participation. If I let down my guard, Life would be chaotic, and therefore I have to worry about it in order to keep it upright and proper. Now, just, again, just let that in, because those are the emotional assumptions. They may not be the philosophical or logical assumptions that you hold intellectually, but emotionally, that's what you're saying. That's what we're saying to ourselves. And yet it's like totally adharmic that life is chaotic and whimsical, that there's nothing I can trust here, if that's how we're going to be, then there will be no uh, spiritual journey for us. It'll be a journey of selfing our way through life. But the future, in the future, the outcome isn't knowable because it hasn't occurred yet. How could the outcome be knowable? But because we are, so, uh, we are so shaken by the chaos of not knowing, that the only way we seem to be able to relate to not knowing is to try to work out a map that's certain and secure in the future, which is the map of planning. And we are anxiously doing that, so that because the anxiety comes from having to feel the sense of fear that's present and chaos that's present now. Instead of being willing to settle with that chaos, just let me, okay, let me just feel this thing. I lost my car keys, is the example I use over and over again. Because it's common to us all. So just, okay, let me, okay, so that's, that's the reality of this moment. The car keys are not to be found. What's more, I might have left them in the movie theater or my billfold. My security is being threatened. See, the, the only way the mind knows how to make security occur is through ideas about the future. That's the only way it has. 
because right now it can't find the car keys. And so then it'll get very, uh, if, especially if your partner lost them and you didn't, <laughs> it'll get very righteous about what needs to happen in the future for car keys never to be lost again. <laughs> and there's a view here. The view that we are asserting is that I am the guardian and protector of life here. Isn't it? It's an interesting view. We hold it. It's, it's a view of, of, of being a savior. It's a savior complex. My influence is all that matters. Who would run the world if I didn't worry about it? I have the power here. I have the soul power. I mean, talk about arrogance. So getting a sense of what the assumptions are that are driving this particular display forward. And there are common, we're looking at common threads to many of the states of mind we've already talked about and many more that we have yet to talk about, like control. Because when we're talking about worry, we're talking about how the mind forms itself towards security and many of the states of mind that endanger our security have the same common patterns and strategies going forward. So what's the third strategy to, or assumption based in worry? The third one. We do not care unless we worry. That, 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 one, that one's a good one. Because I think it comes from our Christian, some of us from our Christian background. You know, Christ so loved the world that he gave himself uh, up uh, to show that love, to express that love. And so we have a loved one who might be, you know, driving across the country or in the hospital or having some, or just being away from sight. And we want to express and show that we love them, and we do that. Uh, by worrying about them. And there's an interesting, you see, w when the sense of self forms, it really is an insulated position of self-concern. What each of us are most concerned about within the egoic sense of self is me. And we sense that. We sense that the caring isn't complete somehow. It's, it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a caring that uh, is conditional. It's a conditional caring. And so the way we, that's, that feels so abhorrent to us that we are number one in our own eyes, that we try to balance that picture by worrying our way to caring. Okay, well, I, I'm so, uh, so lost in my own self-assumptions, I'll think about them in an anxious way. And it's still my fear. I'm afraid of this person having an accident. Why am I afraid? Because I'll be hurt if this person's hurt. It's still, but it, it feels like we're alleviating the problem by worrying outside of ourselves. And so this sense of, this, this sense of equating our caring, how much we care about something, 
is dependent, you know, is dependent upon the love we have for that person, and we really believe it. We think, we think, we think that if we stopped worrying, that they wouldn't be okay. That's an assumption within the assumption. Now, some of you are wiggling. I can always tell when I get too close to the truth because <laughs> it's hard to hold. So how do we look at that? How do we take that on, you see? You want to take that on. You don't just have that emotional response in you. You want to take that on. Look at that thing. This is ridiculous. This is insanity from every point of view, from emotional, psychological, spiritual, from every point of view, that we prove our love through tension that we hold. I am suffering, so therefore there must be love there. But if you know what true love, if you know what love does, love is the empty, love is emptiness. Love is the emptiness of fo the formlessness. That's true love. And we try to form as love. And that's a contradiction of statement. That's a contradiction of purposes. Love by definition is not form. And the way we form in love is through worry or similar strategies. So it's time, it's time that we got a sense of what real love is and how love is not demanding. It has no quid pro quo. It doesn't establish a demand upon it. And that's why when we look at the formlessness, we can call it love, we can call it understanding, because that in the heart is what real love does, isn't it? It receives and understands without demanding, without tension. And yet, if we had somebody who was at risk and we didn't think about them all the time, we think there would be something wrong with us. We think that we would be uh, somehow remiss in our duty as a parent or a loved one, that we weren't tight and tense around their journey or whatever they were on. Number four. We're looking at assumptions. With enough thought, this is what, this is the assumption worry is based upon. With enough thought, I can fix anything. <laughs> right? And we have, we have a culture that I think puts an enormous amount of faith in science. And uh, you know, Right now, science has fixed a lot of problems, but it doesn't seem to be able to fix uh, certain uh, egoic problems, does it? This sense that science is my ultimate salvation, with, uh, in other words, if I just do enough of objective thinking, I can come to a solution 
doesn't allow us ever to meet the problem. It's always trying to get over the problem with a solution. And therefore, the problem is never thoroughly understood, as I had been mentioning. It's, never, it's bypassed secondarily to the solutions I have for it. So we never really integrate the problem or really look at what the nature of the problem or nature of a problem is. So this sense that, you know, and many of us have it. Okay, now let me just mull this over enough with a certain kind of tension. And this statement of intense thought will have to provide a solution. Well, the solution may be right in front of our eyes, not through the thoughts or intellectualization or abstraction from the problem, but in meeting the problem without resistance. Maybe there's a solution there that is waiting for our interconnectedness rather than for our tension. And in worry, we're trying to work out the solution prior to the problem even arising because we're trying to foresee problems in the future and solve them prior to them even occurring. Now, is that, I mean, we have to, again, have some resolution of spirit in us that this needs to end. Now, the, the last assumption is one that I've touched upon in one of the other assumptions, is that if I worry enough, I will affect the outcome. I mean, you laugh, but see, what, see, if, see if you really believe that when in the middle of your worry, that if, if I, I can't stop worrying because somehow, you know, there's something I'm doing, and we even bring a spiritual, you know, like all things are connected, my worry will move things, and all of this kind of nonsense, that my worry is really an essential part of the change that's necessary for the world to occur. Okay? So those are the assumptions that we have to come to terms with if we're going to move ourselves mm -hmm. out of the sense of worry. But there's a payoff to worry that keeps us within those assumptions. So let's look at some of the payoff, and they sometimes overlap with the assumptions themselves, so be patient with some of this. The one is, I am so self-absorbed, and some of us feel self-absorbed, worry helps me escape myself. That's a payoff. It helps me get out of myself as if I'm really thinking about that other person in a meaningful way by worrying about them. So that's a payoff we get. We get out of ourselves and worry. But actually, we're creating fear as a result. Who's fearing? We're feel fearing. So we stay very much in ourselves because of the tension we're created in trying to get out of ourselves. This is full of paradoxes like this. And it often proves a root issue that's deeply embedded in many of us. And that root issue, and root issues are deep assumptions uh, that have been conditioned by uh, childhood in which problems were resolved through a particular way we held life. And it forms itself into an assumption about who we are in life. And 
the assumption in which worry is based is that nobody was there for me in childhood and it's all up to me now. Right? So someone who had that particular uh, environment that created that assumption in life will be a worrier. Because if it's all up to you, you're, if your parents weren't around, if you feel abandoned, if you weren't loved, if you have, then this root assumption, I mean, we've talked about other root assumptions like inadequacy and that sort of thing, and certainly that doesn't, uh, it doesn't negate that inadequacy could also be another assumption that's acting in a coordination with this one, but this assumption that nobody was there for me in childhood, that's conditioning, and perhaps you were an older brother or an older sister and had to take care of younger brothers or younger sister or a younger sister or younger brother or your dog. Doesn't really matter. That nobody was there to give you assistance when you're a child, when you feel helpless. And you build into you a sort of a strategy going forward that you will assert whatever tension you need to upon life to assure that you never have to feel that same uncomfortable abandonment again. So how are we going to deal with this? I mean, we can't just keep moving forward. That's conditioning, reconditioning itself. You just keep moving it forward. It does, the snowball gets bigger rolling downhill. It doesn't get smaller. We have to look around and question it from new, a new set of criteria, a new set of facts. Is it true that it's all up to me? that I have no assistance here whatsoever. Now, we may have, we may have navigated our life so that we now live that assumption head on because of the choices we've made that nobody is reliable except me. We have gone through multiple partners or never had a partner. And so now we have created the reality of that assumption and so all that does is reinforce the outlook through which the assumption can gain traction. True, oh, it's true. Look. Or you may have had a partner or have a partner who has no willingness to do anything to help or support you at all. You chose that partner. But it reaffirms the basic assumption of your attitude to life. It's of our making. It's of our making. And it's because of that, it can be of our undoing. But you can see what you're up against. There's a whole logic. This is called a view, a whole logic to what life holds for you. And how it will never be any better than it is now, because we keep making choices based upon the assumption that holds us in lockstep to the fixed view we have. Sobering. And so another, we'll move off of that one because I could feel some disturbance in the room. <laughs> it's all right. So another uh, payoff is the, the personal power we get from, from worrying. You know, as I mentioned, it gives us a, a savior complex. We feel that you know, we're essential, the essential important ingredient to the perfect stew of life. You know, we're the one thing that has to be there. 
And so, of course, we'll keep forming around worry just so we can have that position to life. And that part of that is, you know, thank God I'm alive or God, it would, life would just be a disaster. You know? So worry, you can begin to see, is actually a process of self-affirmation. We're self-affirming ourselves through worry. But to remember, you know, all of this elevates our general sense of self-worth, but we're actually being contained and controlled by fear. And if our self-worth is based upon a fear response to life, what value is the sense of self that created that fear response in the first place? It created that tie-in to life. And instead of taking ourselves and really looking and seeing what this is about and coming to new terms, a new understanding of what the sense of I am, am within this display and manifestation, we just continue on and claim that we're moving on our spiritual journey. It's sobering to realize how deeply we have to look to uproot our notions. It's not just about sitting 30 minutes a day or whatever you might be doing. It's a deep inquiry, a deep life involvement, deeply involved in our life. Seeing, understanding, looking, questioning, asking from those, is this true? I've been told this. I've been believing this, but what one gains through that is a personal trust, is a confidence. It's a confidence in the consciousness, in the thrill of taking oneself on. And it is joyful. It's not the begrudgery of loosening the chains that have bound us. It's the joy of doing just that. But if we believe in only our own power, if we believe in only our own authority, if we believe in only our own assertion of control, we have to question the derivation of, of the pain that we are feeling. What is, what is this worry, this pain I'm feeling? Any sense of pain or fear anger, any sense of contraction whatsoever needs our exploration. It's a call to turn towards it, to look at it, to see and understand what it is. And I was listening to a cosmologist who says he was a little discouraged by the fact of how easily the universe is giving up its secrets. He wanted it to be harder. <coughs> The same universe is in us, and the secrets will be revealed if we are willing to observe, if we're willing to turn towards them. The secrets will be revealed. People who have wisdom, who can speak about these particular contracted states, 
All they've ever done is turn towards them. There's no secret messages that have come from the devas. They've simply been willing to look at them. And each one of us has that potential. Each one of us holds that ability. That's why there's universal uh, potential within each, each of us. But we have to have the courage to turn towards it. Problems don't need to be overcome, they need to be understood. When you just have the problem of worry, you don't even look at the assumptions on which worry is based. You just try to solve life because it's worrisome. That's a problem to be overcome. To look at the nature of worry is to take the nature of the problem itself and dissect it. And when we get too you know, manipulative in our response to life, too authority, too, too driven by the authority we each of us contain, we miss the joy, we miss the access, we miss the availability, the lightness of it. Have you, I know all of you have had these serendipitous experiences where you'll think of someone, you turn the corner and there they are, or you want something and suddenly it's given to you, or the manifestation, the sudden and spontaneous manifestation of life is missed because of the tensions through which we hold it. Can we hold worry now? Can we look at it now? Are we willing to feel the nature of worry and explore the worry itself rather than let worry set its course in an, into an uncertain future? Does worry have to represent more than what it is, which is a state of mind? I leave you with those questions. Can we sit for a minute or two? So, uh, I, tonight, I really wanted us to see what's in front of us here when we, as we are speaking about these states. That it's not, that it needs involvement, but it needs the right involvement. It doesn't need our worry. It needs our understanding. It needs, something needs to be called from us that truly wants to be put an end to this conditioned tendencies to replicate ourselves moment after moment through these states of mind. Okay, so any questions or concerns or comments that anyone would have, I would be happy to see if I can respond to them. Cameraman. <laughs> yes, I have more of a comment, I think, okay. question. Um, your talk, and including the, uh, the, the poem right in the beginning, it all kind of lined up for me, and it kind of opened up an area of exploration for me. Um, as a parent, I think I can speak for many of us in the room, that much of my worries have to do with my children and, and for their future. Um, 
and the feeling is, are they prepared for the world that is to come? Do, are they going to college or, or whatever the, this idea I have of their future? And um, I feel worried that it may not happen or, or whatever. And, and looking deeper into that, um, through your talk, I've, I've seen that so much of that is a worry about me. It really doesn't have anything to do with them. It has to do with the idea is, have I failed as a parent? Have I, have I prepared them well? When, when, when I am old, will they be able to take care of me? These really are, are worries about me. And, and, and they are kind of encapsulated in this idea that, that they are coming out of love and care for them. And what I, what I saw in, um, in contrast to that, was that when the sense of, of love does arise for them, it, it's really accompanied by just a, um, a great gratitude oh, nice. for, for just being present with their unfolding, whatever it may be. Uh, right, beautiful. And yeah. um, that seems to be, and, and in that sense, it is timeless. It's just gratitude right. that they are here. Right, appreciation. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, let me just do catch the people who are listening to talk online. He said that um, when he s sees his children in relationship to his worry, he realized that much of the worry holds a particular self-centeredness and that he is worrying because he needs them safe or he needs them to, he needs himself to feel like a good parent in relationship to how they're manifesting or how they turn out or he needs them to think about him in the old age, <coughs> in his old age. Center. But when he, he has a moment of real love for his children, he feels gratitude and appreciation that is not conditioned upon a center of, 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 center of self-centeredness. <clears throat> and I think, I mean, that's a, that's a key element, I think, is the, perhaps the, the key element of what true love looks like. It doesn't, it doesn't have a uh, you know, I'm doing this for you so that at in some point you can, I can receive it back again. It's just a, a gratitude and appreciation for being together, isn't it? And for the space that's being shared now. Hmm? Right. <coughs> So she said that uh, as she was growing up, it seemed very important for her to have a kind of a sense of anxiety and worry about uh, getting herself through school. The next test she was going to be taking, the sense of achievement and moving forward. <clears throat> but maybe as an adult now that she can relook at that particular assumption. And uh, it's, again, it's a holdover from an old paradigm that we've been in uh, that's very uh, stark and uh, very... Uh, formed in our childhood and it carries well into our adulthood that is the need 
uh, that, that we just that somehow we don't have the basic uh, provision within us to do it from interest, to do it from love. We have to kind of whip ourselves into shape to have us do anything at all. And it's an interesting it's an interesting question because many of us have driven ourselves, and may I say, out of our interest through our need to hold a kind of tension to ourselves that belies the interest we naturally have in what it is that we might be learning or practicing or the jobs we are in. And also, the secondary uh, driven ambitions like gain and uh, status seem to cover over this truer natural alignment to, of interest to what I'm doing that comes out on its own. And we don't have any faith that there could be any tie-in to the profession we're in or to the job, the hobbies we live or to the life we're even leading in our family if I didn't just keep prodding myself along with a cattle prod. I would definitely look at that. And you have to be willing to say, maybe this job will fall away completely. When maybe there isn't any interest anymore. Or maybe there is. And maybe even a most mundane and routine job, when we release the tension that has kept us from seeing where that interest naturally lies, we can find interest. Somebody who is a, um, uh, likes people and is on a job that may be mundane and routine but has a lot of interactions with different people can find his joy in his job through those interactions. It doesn't have to be necessarily in the widget he or she might be making. But we don't, we don't think that there's any passion in this that goes forward. The passion is a part of life. Life is what produces the passion. Life is passionate, very passionate. When we are quiet, and if you, if you saw a child in the street, and you were very quiet in, in a deeply quiet state, you wouldn't go, oh, child in street, car coming, oh, wow. <laughs> no, you would run out on that street. There's a passion that life brings forth that is not self-induced. And again, and we'll never find the orientation to this new strategy as long as we constantly inflict or sustain ourselves within the old. Let's see. Let's see what this looks like. What's the relationship between worry and fear? What's the relationship between worry and fear? Well, obviously, as I mentioned, it's, it's interrelated, aren't they? You know, because when you're concerned about tomorrow, and the worry of that. The worry of that holds a kind of restlessness. It has a planning component to it. It has a trying to, it's like, a, like I've got to plot this. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, un, uh, it's an overemphasis on a, the thought, the strategy of thought to be able to get me out of any, like I mentioned in the assumptions. And so it's laced with fear. It has an anxiety, but it's a specific type of fear, right? It's a specific type of fear. Yes.
Of what? You have to speak up. Oh, right. Right. Denial. Denial. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. <laughs> so he was saying that uh, what the strategy he does to compensate for a job interview or a, a, uh, a test that's worrisome and tension-filled is to go the other way and to say, oh, you know, this to hell, whatever, whatever happens is... That's a, de that's a denial of the actual difficulty that we're doing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to get out of the uh, difficulty by telling ourselves a different story about it, really. Hmm? It's okay. I'm not picking on you. We all do various defense mechanisms in compensation, but we have to be very careful that we're not, or we're clear on that it's just, it's an overcompensation to a sense of fear that feels very, so frightful to us that we have to compensate by trying to pretend like we don't have it at all. And, you know, this is to take this thing on. If we're going to take it on, we have to take it on in the reality that it's manifesting and not try to compensate for anything. What is this thing? You know, this is important to me. I feel like this is important. My, I don't have a job. I'm unemployed and I need one. You know, so there's a tremendous pressure on me I'm feeling. And I'm worried from that pressure. You know, if I say something wrong in the uh, interview, that could be it for me. So what do I do? So all of that tension is supposed to help us ultimately through the interview. That's why we have pumped ourselves up. But you get in the interview, people see a tense, tight person, and they say, well, the guy before him, he was really relaxed. I think <laughs> <laughs> so you lose the job because of the defenses we use to get the job or to get through the fear component of it. So it just doesn't work to build ourselves up in theory, thinking that we can pump ourselves into a kind of action that, uh, that will have us do a better job. If we need to get the job, we will study, we will do our homework. We don't have to worry about that, that's for certain. And then you go in and you say, okay, I did the best I could now, let's just see what happens. And there's this, this welcoming of faith into our lives. Faith, rather than planning, welcoming in it. Let's just see what life brings here. It may not bring the job. I hope it does, but we'll see. It's not up to me now. It's not up to me now. Let me see. Okay, all good. Let us all see. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.